the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. In this first hour, I get to have a conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book is titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. He takes on 10 issues that are a challenge to many of us. The book is published by Baker Books, and he'll join me here in just a couple of segments, the bottom of uh, this hour. So looking forward to talking with Dr. Jeffress. First, taking a look at some of the uh, the day's headlines, the Department of Homeland Security announced today that it's going to end mass immigration enforcement operations at work sites. Well, in a memo issued to Citizenship and Immigration Services and Customs and Border Protection, the Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas argued that enforcement operations could be more effective when directed at employers of illegal immigrants instead of immigrants themselves. The deployment of mass worksite operations, sometimes resulting in the simultaneous arrest of hundreds of workers, was not focused on the most pernicious aspect of our country's unauthorized employment challenge. Exploitive employers, Mayorkas wrote, Well, these highly visible operations misallocated enforcement resources while chilling and even serving as a tool of retaliation for worker cooperation in workplace standards investigations, end quote. Well, the DHS press release echoed Mayorkas language. So the employers will be the focus of any actions if any actions are, in fact, taken. Well, demand for energy continues to skyrocket due to post-COVID-19 recovery. U.S. oil prices have hit $80 a barrel for the first time in nearly seven years. Well, on Monday, crude oil closed at $80.52 a barrel. The last time oil finished above $80 was October 31st of 2014. And while seasonal fluctuations rather in gas prices are typical, with hikes expected during the summer when leisure travel and transportation are at a high, they usually temper by the fall. Not the case this time around. The national average gas price has increased by $0.07 cents in the last week alone, landing at a steep $3.27 a gallon on Monday, according to AAA, and much higher in some places. Well, the price spike constitutes yet more evidence contradicting the uh, claim that recent inflationary pressures are transitory. That does not seem to be the the case. Now, we're old enough to remember when President Donald Trump largely fulfilled the promise of several of his predecessors to make U.S. energy independent, including becoming a net oil exporter. It took Joe Biden all of one day to begin undoing that achievement, and he's been, well, all too successful. Beginning with his executive order shuttering the Keystone XL pipeline, continuing with his moratorium on new drilling leases and other policies, he's made every effort to obstruct America's energy supply, all while helping Vladimir Putin's solidify his. Predictably, Biden's efforts have increased energy prices for every American. Now, if you're not uh, in the media, uh, fact checker, in fact, 
You might even call it a tax increase on the middle class. Well, gas prices recently reached, as I mentioned, a seven-year high after rising an average of $1 per gallon since December. Also, for the first time in nearly seven years, crude oil now exceeds $80 a barrel or about double the price last November. Natural gas and coal are experiencing similar price hikes, all while renewables like wind and solar are insufficient replacements. Now, regarding oil, the president's uh, constriction of supply got so bad that he went hat in hand to OPEC to ask them to increase production. They told him to pound sand. That's putting it nicely. Well, amidst all of this uh, chaos and the malaise that has resulted, has the president uh, come to an epiphany? Has he realized the error of his ways? Well, no, is the answer. Uh, He's been in Washington for half a century, which is far too long for any A humble realization like that. In fact, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm floated a ban on oil exports to go along with trapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or rather tapping it, to reduce pressure on Biden's flagging poll numbers, um, uh, oil and gas prices. Well, the Energy Department sort of walked that back for her, but the White House declined to comment. Meanwhile, the president's infrastructure bill would create a national study to assess a new mileage tax to be assessed based on how many miles drivers are on the road. It's not a tax yet, but as miles per gallon averages increase along with miles driven, the old federal gas tax of 18 cents per mile is raising insufficient revenue for actual infrastructure. Also, don't forget that coming down the pike is Biden's electric vehicle mandate. A lot of people will benefit. You're probably not one of them. Well, in short, Biden is flying the green flag of saving the planet, but his policies are costing every American higher prices to fill up their gas tanks and heat their homes, as well as creating a myriad of other inflationary factors, all while weakening U.S. national security as we become more energy dependent once again. Anyone still thinking the bad orange man was all that bad? Okay, we could have a conversation about that, but on this issue, I think it's a good question. Well, the U.N. women... The United Nations organization responsible for furthering the cause of women all over the world seems out to erase itself and any credibility it has as a women's rights organization. Well, U.N. Women announced in July it would focus on equality of all genders instead of solely women's rights, which is what their sole purpose and focus was to be. It's one of many organizations taking up the cause of non-biological women's rights to claim womanhood, much to the fear of women's rights groups of all stripes. The organization went a step further in documents called 12 Small Actions with Big Impact for Generation Equality. The organization says terms such as male or female and women uh, and men Exclude non-binary and intersex people who don't fall into any of these categories, unless you're considering biology, of course. Everyday language plays a huge role in breaking gender stereotypes and rejecting the binary of male and female, unless you consider science relevant in the debate. Instead of using phrases like ladies and gentlemen or boys and girls, swap in a gender neutral term like folks, children or y'all. But you and women Uh, has yet to take its own advice. If it did, U.N. women would be tossed by the wayside in favor of a less offensive name, U.N. folks or children. Has a nice uh, ring to it. Or maybe U.N. y'all would be better. But as of uh, this point, they're still U.N. women. Apparently they are the exception to the rule they're attempting to impose on everybody else. Well, the former software chief for the Pentagon says we will have no competing fighting chance against China 
in 15 to 20 years. Well, that's encouraging. Huh. Nicholas uh, Chalane, who's 37, he told the Financial Times on Sunday that there is a good reason to be angry at the U.S. failing to rise to China's cyber threat, even fearing that it puts his children's future at risk. We have no competing fighting chance against China in 15 to 20 years. Right now, it's already a done deal. It's already over, in my opinion. You can read more on that in the New York Post. From the Daily Wiler, Chilane blamed misallocation of military resources, overregulation, and the failure of U.S. tech companies to aid the federal government in tech research for the United States' poor position on the tech and cyber. Software chief um, explains that I've been trying for three years now to convince various teams to partner and merge work across the department. More often than that, I have failed to at convincing teams to merge work or it was so painful that it was designed to fail from day one and then used as an excuse not to try again. At this point, I am just tired of continuously chasing support and money to do my job. My office still has no billet and no funding this year or the next. Again. We will have no competing fighting chance against China in 15 to 20 years, according to the former software chief for the Pentagon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. But a reminder coming up in the next, well, the segment after the next segment, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book simply titled Invincible. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book is titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. Dr. Robert Jeffress coming up. Well, Governor Greg Abbott has banned vaccine mandates in the state of Texas as the pushback on mandates grows. Uh, Texas Governor Abbott on Monday issued another executive order cracking down on COVID-19 vaccine mandates, this time banning any entity in Texas, including private businesses, from requiring vaccinations for employees or customers. Um, The governor said the COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective and our best defense against the virus, but should remain voluntary and never forced. Well, the Supreme Court is in session. One case could be the legacy of this court. The court has uh, weighty issues on the docket. We'll talk more about that in the second hour of today's program. And Southwest Airlines has canceled nearly 2,000 flights. The question is, why? Well, LifeSite reports that after Southwest pilots filed a lawsuit seeking an injunction against their company's mandate, Southwest canceled nearly 2,000 flights over the weekend, citing bad weather and difficulty with traffic, air traffic controllers. And while the airline and pilots union are dismissive of the reports of a pilot walkout, reports on Twitter and elsewhere have continued to emerge. The airline is sticking with the weather story. The company's pilots union said the issues were not due to pilot protests, dispelling misleading tweets from the high profile public figures, including Republican lawmakers. Well, uh, the airline reiterated that the operational challenges were not a result of the Southwest employee demonstrations. However, all the other airlines seem to be making it to and from their destinations, so it does make one wonder. An MSNBC host blasted black hosts for not being black voices. Now, let's see if I can understand this. They're black, they're speaking, but they're not black voices. Hmm. Must be the new math. MSNBC host Tiffany Cross said on Saturday that CNN's Van Jones, ESPN anchor Sage Steele and former MSNBC anchor Carlos Watson may be black, but they are not necessarily black voices. During a monologue, Cross took aim at Jones, Steele and Watson, alleging they do not speak for the black community. 
I would just add to that, neither does Tiffany Cross. Frustration with President Biden is at an all-time high among key constituents. The numbers are particularly striking. Uh, W. Mondale Robinson of the Black Male Voter Project said, I think the frustration is at an all-time high, and Biden can't go to Georgia or any other black state in in the South and say, this is what we delivered in 2021. Robertson said his group believes it reached 1.2 million black men in Georgia. Black men are, well, upset. I won't use his words about the nothingness that has happened. Does it make the work harder? It makes the work much harder. Again, using my own words. Near impossible. Pew Research Center polls found Biden's approval rating among black Americans fell from 85 percent in July to 67 percent in September, while also falling 16 points among Hispanics and 14 points among Asians. Scientists are making it harder to trust the science. Gary Saul Morrison of Northwest University uh, said that when researchers fear losing a grant or being subject to personal attack, if they question a predominant belief, that belief no longer rests on scientific grounds. Dr. Fauci's assertion of authority creates skepticism about all of his assertions. Non-scientists often have to trust scientists to inform them what the science has discovered. Scientists bear the responsibility of not letting politi- politics rather, or other non-scientific criteria affect their Explication. If scientists expect their statements to be trusted, they must themselves be trustworthy in making them. One had better be scrupulously honest before asking people to surrender their judgment and simply believe what they're told. Scientists should be especially careful not to misrepresent political or policy judgments as being scientific. And they must protest vigorously and loudly when other influential people claim to speak in the name of science while misrepresenting it. You can read more on that in the Wall Street Journey Journal. Rather, Tulsi Gabbard has called out the Biden administration for lying to the American people, saying uh, Saturday that the administration misled the American people about the border crisis and the chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal. More, she wrote, the faith and trust that the American people need to have in their leaders is dropping every day. Well, Lego has eliminated boys and girls labels, citing harmful stereotypes. Heaven forbid. Uh, The toy and entertainment industry giant announced today that it will no longer apply girls and boys labels to its toys in order to strike a blow against gender bias, as well as eliminate other harmful stereotypes, because it's just very damaging when girls are drawn to girl things and boys are drawn to boy things, which we are told no longer exists. The Guardian reports that we're working hard to make Lego more inclusive. And Julia Golden, the chief product and marketing officer of the Lego group, said the world's largest toy maker is doing just that. Not that parents couldn't just decide what they want to buy, whether it has a label, one thing or the other. Well, the short deadline and party infighting is threatening the Biden agenda as they're still trying to pass his two major pieces of economic legislation. Democrats are uh, sweating the size of the big government agenda with crucial midterms looming. And Merry Christmas. Lawmakers face a December pileup of spending deadlines. Climate wokesters descended on the White House singing songs and vandalizing an Andrew Jackson statue. There's nothing like uh, dealing with the climate when you deface a statue. President Biden is considering the Defense Production Act to address the semiconductor chip shortage. And veterans, veterans rather, are smuggled um, the Afghan interpreter who helped save Mr. Biden out of Afghanistan and begged him to help him get out himself. That didn't happen. Veterans smuggled him out.
Governor Greg Abbott's executive order says no Texas business can force employees to uh, take the COVID vaccine. And China inevitably denied the World Health Organization access to bat caves in search of COVID origins. Well, Superman is now bisexual. One woke writer says we don't need another straight white savior. You realize he's a cartoon character. And uh, anyway, oil prices continue to surge, breaking a seven year record. The U.S. is headed into another recession if consumer sentiment trends continue, economists say. And Southwest flight cancellations and delays continued on Monday after a very disruptive weekend. Two Fulton County workers have been fired after being accused of shredding voting applications. But voter fraud is a myth. Nothing to see here. Democrats plan to tax the rich. Uh, could have the IRS cutting checks to billionaires. The Washington Examiner has more on that. And nothing to see here. The art gallery repped, um, repping rather, Hunter Biden's art received $500,000 in federal COVID loans. But there's no connection, the New York Post reports. Well, in a bit of humor, Southwest, Air- Southwest Airlines is offering free flights to all passengers who are vaccinated and can fly a plane. Well, on this day in history, 1492, according to the old style calendar, Christopher Columbus expedition arrives in the present day Bahamas. 1810, the German festival Oktoberfest was first held in Munich to celebrate the wedding of Bavarian crown prince Ludwig and princess Teresa of Saxe-Hildburghausen. Supposed to be said more quickly, but at least I got it right. 1973, President Richard Nixon nominates House Minority Leader Gerald R. Ford of Michigan to succeed Spiro Agnew as a vice president. 1984, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she escapes an attempt on her life when a um, an Irish Republican army bomb explodes at a hotel in Brighton, England killing five people. 2000, 17 sailors are killed in a suicide bomb attack on the destroyer USS Cole in Yemen. 2002, bombs blamed on an Al-Qaeda-linked militant uh, destroys a nightclub on the Indonesian island of Bali, killing 202 people, including 88 Australians and seven Americans. 2007, on this day in history, former Vice President Al Gore and the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change win the Nobel Peace Prize for sounding the alarm over global warming. I'm sorry, global cool uh, climate change. That's right. We don't know what to name it. 2014, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention confirms that a healthcare worker at the Texas hospital where Ebola victim Thomas Eric Duncan was treated before his death tested positive for the illness and the first known case of Ebola being contracted or transmitted in the U.S. The worker identified as nurse Nina Pham would be treated and declared free of Ebola. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, American pastor Andrew Brunson flies out of Turkey after a Turkish court convicts him of terror links, but frees him from the house arrest. He's already spent nearly two years in detention. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Dr. Robert Jeffress, Invincible, is the title of his book. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to the conversation we're about to have with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He points out in his book that everyone has a mountain to conquer, something that blocks our way of truth and stands between us and the life God intends for us to live. Well, in his newest book titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life, best-selling author, television and radio host and pastor Dr. Robert Jeffress, he equips readers with biblical insights and practical tools to help them conquer 10 of life's most difficult mountains so that they can fully live the blessed life that God has. Everyone, every one of us has faced at least one of these 10 mountains, um, and he explores in the book all 10 of them. I'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Um, if you ever hope to conquer these mountains and experience the blessed life God wants us to live, then we have to step out in faith with our eyes fully fixed on the one whose presence causes mountains to melt like wax. Well, I'm just delighted to have back once again, Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's senior pastor of the 15,000 member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He's a Fox News contributor. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than 930 stations nationwide, and his weekly television program is seen on thousands of cable systems and stations in the U.S. and in nearly 200 countries around the world. Known for his bold biblical stands on cultural issues, uh, Dr. Jeffress has been interviewed on more than 3,000 radio and television programs, well, maybe 3,001. We're glad to have uh, have you with us, Dr. Jeffress. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Georgine. I don't know how you how you have time to do a radio interview, but I'm grateful that you're with us. Oh, I look forward <laughs> to it all day. Now, um, you use the word in the title of the book, Invincible. That is such a big word. Can you define it in the context of a believer who is walking by faith uh, and has overcome the mountains that you write about in this book? What does it mean to be invincible, and is, is that possible? Well, it is possible, and it's really an attitude I think Paul describes in Romans eight thirty seven when he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not a positive-thinking mumbo-jumbo book. It's a realistic book about obstacles we're all facing, especially, Georgine, during these last 18 months Mm -hmm. of this pandemic. Mountains like loneliness, uh, anxiety, fear, grief. We've all experienced these things. And, you know, Jesus said, if you have faith as tiny as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, let's be honest. He wasn't speaking literally, but he was speaking truthfully. The fact is, these very real obstacles that separate us from the life God wants us to uh, to experience, these obstacles, we can't get rid of them once and all for all. There's no one-time prayer, one thing uh, that we can do that will remove anxiety from our life forever. We may not be able to rid ourselves of these mountains, but we can conquer them before they conquer us. And that's what the book Invincible about. What does it look like to partner with God to move the mountains that you write about, uh, the mountains that we experience that's common to believers? Well, you know, the fact is, uh, there's only one thing that God says you cannot participate in at all, and that's your salvation. We are saved by God's grace Mm -hmm. received through faith. But everything else worthwhile in our life, frankly, is a cooperative effort between God and us. Uh, God doesn't say, you know, 
give everything to me, and uh, you don't have to do anything. Remember, he said to the Israelites, I'm going to give you the promised land, but you're going to have to fight for every square inch of it. And so I talk about in this book these different ten mountains. They all are different sizes. They require different skills to be able to conquer. But again, with God, all things are possible. Amen. Well, early in the book, you write about a recent mountain you and your family face. Tell us a bit about that and how you were guided to respond to that challenge. Well, one of the mountains we talk about is grief. This has been Mm -hmm. a time of loss that many people have experienced. And I told about a story, our own daughter, Julia, she went through three miscarriages, one right after another. It's a painful experience. And one day she said, Dad, I just want you to know, uh, Ryan, her husband and I are uh, praying for triplets, one life to replace every life that was lost. And Georgine, being the great man of faith I am, I said, Julia, don't pray that way. (laughs) You're just setting yourself up for disappointment. We don't have a history of multiple births in our family. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Dad, if you want to see God do big things, you have to pray big things. And she and her husband prayed big things. God answered that prayer with triplets. And uh, I'm not saying God answers every prayer in that same way, but we have to be bold enough to ask God for what is really in our heart and trust Him for the answer. Well, in the book, um, you write about uh, the, the mountains that we uh, we face. You examine how to move from doubt to faith, from guilt to repentance, from anxiety to peace, from discouragement to hope, from fear to courage, from bitterness to forgiveness, from materialism to contentment, loneliness, loneliness rather, to companionship, from lust to purity and from grief to acceptance. These are such common experiences that oftentimes leave the believer uncertain about how to proceed and whether or not they're mountains that can um, that can be climbed or or uh, put aside so that we can enjoy, as you uh, put it in the book, you can enjoy what God has in mind for us, that blessed life. Well, that's right. And, you know, just one of those mountains, I think so many people are dealing with anxiety. Uh, experts tell us anxiety is at an all-time high. And again, it's not enough, Georgine, to tell people, well, just don't worry. Don't worry. That's like telling somebody, don't think about a pink elephant. Well, that's all they're going to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've got to replace one negative activity with a positive one. Paul said, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And I tell in the book Invincible, uh, my friend David Jeremiah has a great suggestion. He says, take out a piece of paper, write at the top of it, my worry list, and make a list of everything you're worrying about. It may take two or three pages, but once you have finished that list, take your pen, scratch out the worry, a word worry, and insert the word prayer. Turn your worry list into your prayer list. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And the promise is the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, that seems like like such a simple thing when we pray about the things that concern us. How does God uh, how does God use those prayers to change what is affecting some 40 million uh, adults into a life of faith and blessing that we all long for? Well, again, worry isn't something we conquer once and for all, 
but it's uh, something that has to be dealt with sometimes on a daily, if not hourly basis. And uh, I think we need to realize, you know, sometimes our concern is well-placed. It can come because of a neglected responsibility. Maybe you haven't been to the dentist for two years and you're worried you have a cavity. Well, go to the dentist. I mean, that's one way to alleviate mm-hmm. worry. Sometimes worry comes from guilt that is unconfessed. But sometimes, Georgine, it comes from Satan himself. You know, um, I, I read a study one time that said 92% of the things we worry about never come to pass. And that's just like Satan. He is a liar. He's the father of all lies, Jesus said. And we need to confront his lies with the truth. In your first chapter, you take on moving from doubt to faith. Um, you also uh, make a distinction between doubt and unbelief. Can you talk a bit about that chapter and how we can move from doubt to faith? Well, again, this has been a season when people have had doubts about a lot of things. Yes. A lot of their beliefs have been challenged. And the Bible does draw a distinction between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is natural. I mean, just trying to do business with an invisible God causes us to doubt sometimes. Jesus never condemned sincere questions that people have. But what he did condemn was a final conclusion, unbelief, that doubts God and his word. And what's important, Georgine, is not to allow seeds of develop, seeds of doubt, doubt to develop into unbelief. And I like what one person said, you know, doubt is like a mushroom. It grows best in the darkness. And one way to overcome the natural doubt we have is to get back engaged with other Christians in a church setting. Don't allow yourself to be isolated and therefore defeated by Satan. Like Solomon said, two are better than one, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Well, let me just take the opportunity to ask you about remote worship. I know for it may not be the case in Texas, but for many, um, doing a church from home, watching it on a screen has replaced actually going and returning to a congregation here in the Pacific Northwest. Things are opening up and people are now um, welcome to go back to their churches. What do you say to the one who has kind of gotten used to church in their pajamas in the living room with a cup of coffee as opposed to? A fellowship in which you are in close proximity with uh, fellow believers. Look, I'm a strong believer in the internet worship, and we've done it in our church. And last Sunday, we had 400,000 people watching our services. But that is a cheap substitute for the real thing. I would tell people, you know, we're Christians. God designed us to be kind of like those two porcupines in northern Canada that huddled together to keep warm. They needed each other, even though they needled each other. (laughs) The fact is, we as Christians need the touch, even if it's not always pleasant, of other Christians. Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more. And I would just encourage people, get back into church as soon as you can, as safely as you can. Being a Christian doesn't mean being stupid. We still take precautions in our church, but we shouldn't let us at this point rob us of the need we have to be Absolutely. together. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book is titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains That Separate You from the Blessed Life. It's published by Baker Books. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's senior pastor of the 15,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than 930 stations nationwide, and his weekly television program is seen on thousands of cable systems and stations in the U.S. and in nearly 200 countries around the world. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, A Place Called Heaven, and Courageous. His latest book, is titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. And he he writes about the most difficult mountains that can separate us from the blessed life that God has in store for us. And every chapter will equip you with biblical insights and practical tools so that you can conquer it and come out stronger on the other side. Well, this is uh, such a timely book because we are struggling with so many things that have, uh, over the last 18 months, changed what um, was more natural or at least familiar to us. In Invincible, you uh, write about the mountain of fear the Israelites faced as they were approaching the promised land. What did the mountain look like for them and how did they overcome it? What can we take from their adventure? You know, the one thing for the Israelites that separated them from the promised land was fear. Remember, uh, God told them to send the 12 spies in. Many people missed that point that God sent them in there. And they came back, interestingly, with the same report. Uh, The report was it was great land flowing with milk and honey. There were giants in the land. They were mammoth. They differed, though, in their conclusion. Ten said the giants are too big uh, for us to take. Two said we can take them. The difference was they had different standards of comparisons. The ten who voted no compared the giants to their own strength. The two, Caleb and Joshua, who said yes, were comparing the giants to God's stature. And that's the problem with most of us. Most of us measure our problems by our own abilities, our own resources, and we're always going to come up lacking. Georgine, I will use this illustration. Uh, you know, the tallest building in the world is in Dubai. I think it's like 2,700 feet tall. It's a mammoth skyscraper. But compared to Mount Everest, that's 29,000 feet tall, it's nothing but a molehill. The problem is with most of us, we want to turn our molehills into a mountain. God says, if you'll trust me, I'll turn your mountain into a molehill. A matter of perspective and and to whom you are are looking. Now, following and during this COVID-19 pandemic, loneliness is at an all-time high. It didn't begin there, but it certainly has been exacerbated by it. What practical advice can you share with our listeners who want to move from loneliness to companionship in an environment in which we're discouraged from embracing one another? Well, you know, uh, we talked about loneliness a little bit before the break. I would just start with this. First of all, recognize the fact that we all need other people. Now, this is going to shock some of your listeners, and I want them to hear me completely before they turn off the radio. The fact is, a relationship with God is not enough to satisfy all of your emotional needs. The reason I can say that with confidence is God said that. God said it to Adam. He had a perfect relationship with him in the garden before the uh, sin came into the world. But he said to Adam, Adam, it's not good for a person like you to be alone. I will create another human being, a helper suitable for you. We are human beings. We're spirit beings, yes, but we're humans who need one another. God designed it that way. And so I think it starts with the realization, Georgine, that we really do need each other. And then I would just encourage people, 
to understand there are different levels of friendship and uh, companionship, you know, acquaintances, casual friends, close friends, forever friends. But the best place to meet all of those people, I think, is in the church. And that's why every believer needs to be plugged in to a church, to a small group where they can minister to one another and be ministered to by one another. We touched on this a bit earlier in our conversation as well, but in the last chapter of the book, you walk readers through the path from grief to acceptance. We've lost loved ones and friends and co-workers to COVID-19, and it has uh, made us more acutely aware of our own mortality and perhaps uh, given us a glimpse of a- eternity that we might not otherwise consider. Can you talk us uh, through that journey from grief yeah. to acceptance? Well, anytime you have a significant loss, there's grieving, whether it's the loss of another person, the loss of a job. I think, uh, Georgine, I've seen people just grieve over the loss of time. They felt like Mm -hmm. these last two years in some ways have been lost. And uh, I get the question as a pastor, well, when will I start feeling normal again? And I try to say gently, probably never. Uh, There's a new normal, though, that you'll experience that can be uh, as good as, if not better, than the old normal. And uh, we have to understand grief really is a process you go through. Jesus went through it with his friend uh, Lazarus, who was dead, even though Jesus knew what he was about to do with Lazarus. He grieved. He wept over the death of Lazarus. And uh, we can't rush through the process of grief. I tell people grief is like going into a dark tunnel. The bad news is it's dark, it's terrifying, it's lonely. The good news is once you've started in that tunnel of grief, you're already on the way out of it. And as the psalmist said, joy endures the evening, but joy comes in the morning. Mm, Thank the Lord for that. Are there any words of encouragement on God's promises and moving mountains and what what life is like on the other side of the mountain that we have conquered that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would just like to remind them of what Jesus said. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. He gave a very honest assessment. He talked about pestilence, which is another word for pandemic. He talked about wars and rumors of wars. He talked about civil unrest. He talked about all of these things we've experienced. In this world, that's part and parcel of living in a sin-filled world. But he added the word, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And that's what invincible is. We don't have to allow these mountains to conquer us. With God, all things are possible. And I encourage people to pick up a copy of the book. Lots of people are using it in a group study. Trust me, when you announce you're going to be talking about how to conquer loneliness, grief, worry, fear, uh, people want to hear that. So they can pick up a copy and use it as a group study as well as an individual book. Yeah, absolutely. And I always ask the question, uh, is there a particular way that, that listeners can find a copy of Invincible? Because I know they're going to want it. Well, thank you for having me so much. They can get it at Amazon.com. That's the easiest way, or Christian Books, uh, or uh, any uh, other major retailer or retailer right now. I think Hobby Lobby, all Hobby Lobbies have them. Well, once again, I so appreciate the time that you take to engage in conversation. You have such a busy schedule, so I'm grateful for that. And I thank you for taking the time to minister to and encourage the body of Christ with this and so many of your books. This book in particular, Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. Thank you, Dr. Jeffress. Always a joy to be with you, Georgine. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the chapters in the book, Moving from Doubt to Faith, 
from guilt to repentance, from anxiety to peace, discouragement to hope, moving from fear to courage, moving from bitterness to forgiveness, from materialism to contentment, moving from loneliness to companionship, from lust to purity, and from grief to acceptance. And then his last chapter uh, has to do with the mountain behind you, because oftentimes we look behind us. I'm reminded of the freedom that Israel enjoyed when uh, the, the waters were parted and they were free from slavery in Egypt, and yet they longed for the leeks and onions they enjoyed there. Now, they apparently forgot everything that went along with those leeks and onions, and we sometimes look back and remember aspects of where we have been that we long for. So his last chapter deals with uh, the mountain behind you, uh, along with the other practical elements of the book. Again, Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life, published by Baker Books. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And then in the second hour of the program, we'll talk a little bit about what's happening here in Oregon with regard to the um, redistricting map that's being rejected by some Republicans. And we have a new gubernatorial candidate, or at least someone who's exploring the idea from the New York Times. That and much more when we return right here on the Georgine Rice Show. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to wind our way through some of the top news stories of the day. But before we do that, I want to remind you that October is, yeah, Pastor Appreciation Month. And in that vein, our Pastor Appreciation Rest and Relaxation Getaway is something we want to make sure you know about. Well, during Pastor's Appreciation Month, you can show love to your pastor when you enter the Pastor Appreciation Rest and Relaxation Getaway Giveaway. Okay, you try saying that several times. Anyway, enter for your pastor's chance to win a seven-day getaway for two to The Cove. It's a ministry of the Billy Graham Association in North Carolina. And what pastor, for that matter, who wouldn't want that kind of a getaway? It includes airfare, meals, a $500 Visa gift card, and more. So you can show your pastor you love and appreciate them for the hard work they do. You can enter today at kpdq.com. Again, the Pastor Appreciation Rest and Relaxation Getaway. Well, Republicans here in the state of Oregon are suing to block the Democrats' uh, extreme partisan gerrymandering of the Oregon congressional districts. Now, in this particular version, it's the Democrats who did the gerrymandering, but of course, both parties do it to their advantage. Four Republican former elected officials asked a court on Monday to invalidate what they say is an obvious extreme partisan gerrymander. Well, even the Washington Post admitted that's precisely what it is. And again, it's not altogether surprising. That's what politicians tend to do. This is the um, Oregon Congressional District because Oregon now has one additional member of the U.S. House. Well, the quartet filed suit exactly two weeks after the Oregon House and the Senate on strict party line votes approved a map that created Oregon's new 6th Congressional District, and it reshapes the other five in a way that's all but well guaranteed to give Democrats five of the six seats. That's 83% ratio uh, that far exceeds the 56 percent share of the votes Oregonians cast for Democrat Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. No matter, there's a political advantage to be had. Well, the map sp- uh, splits two of the three, um, uh, I should say two to three times as many counties 
consensus tracks, and even tiny block groups into different congressional districts than the map lawmakers created the last time they drew districts to reflect new census figures. That was back in 2011, according to the lawsuit. And the four Republicans take particular issue with the redrawn version of the 5th Congressional District, now held by Representative Kurt Schrader, an Oregon City Democrat. As drawn by Democrats, it's going to extend from a small swath of the outer southeast Portland all the way to Bend. It's a rather peculiar-looking and... um, strained uh, effort to guarantee a particular outcome. Well, the lawsuit was filed in Marion County Circuit Court. It claims that out of line with the state's law requiring districts be connected to transportation links, the district will stretch from Clackamas County across the Cascade Mountains, which can be impassable during winter conditions, it says. So there are some standards that lawmakers are supposed to adhere to. Well, Democratic lawmakers knew and privately discussed with the members of their own party on the House Redistricting Committee that the proposed map was obviously politically gerrymandered in the Democrats' favor, the suit claims, without citing evidence of such discussions. Well, the lawsuit asked the court to redraw the districts ahead of the 2022 election cycle and make the state pay the Republicans' attorneys' fees in the process. Well, under a new system lawmakers enacted in 2013, a five-judge panel appointed by Oregon Supreme Court Chief Justice will hear the case and, if convinced the petitioners are correct, redraw the lines. Well, Oregon law says no district shall be drawn for the purpose of favoring any political party, incumbent legislator, or other person. It's almost laughable because redrawing congressional districts is always an exercise in doing all three. Oregon courts have set a high bar for proving that maps are uh, impermissibly drawn to benefit certain politicians or a political party, but challenge these Republicans have. Well, the Oregon Supreme Court presented with a similar court challenge in 2001 and to then Secretary of State Bill Bradbury's Democrat favoring plan dismissed the critics lawsuit on these grounds. It may be true that in some circumstances, this court could infer from a record that a secretary of state had the purpose of favoring one particular political party over another. However, the mere fact that a particular reapportionment may result in a shift in political control, and that is all the petitioners um, point uh, to on this record, falls short of demonstrating such a purpose, end quote. In other words, this lawsuit, like the one before it, is not likely to succeed. Well, during discussions of the proposed map, during uh, committee meetings and floor debates leading up to the Democrats' unanimous yes votes, lawmakers on the D side said over and over that the congressional map was drawn using the required criteria, including forming contiguous districts uh, with almost precisely the same number of residents, keeping together communities of interest and ensuring that transportation corridors link different parts of each district. Now, the four Republicans who filed the suit on Monday, their former state lawmakers, former appointed Secretary of State Bev Clarno, former House Speaker Larry Campbell, former House Republican leader Gary Wilhelms and former mayor of the Dalles, James Wilcox. Well, lawyer Sean Lindsay, who's a former Republican lawmaker himself, who filed the lawsuit on behalf of the other former office holders, didn't uh, respond to questions about how the legal team plans to overcome that Supreme Court ruling in a case known as Hartung versus Bradbury. Some of us actually remember when that happened. Well, a Chicago-based lawyer who was uh, representing the Republicans in the high-profile case plans to make Republicans' case in the Oregon map challenge. Well, the lawsuit cites House Speaker Tina Kotek's decision to... 
um, renege on a deal she uh, struck with House Republicans to achieve a political advantage for Democrats in exchange for giving Republicans equal say on the House Redistricting Committee. As another piece of evidence, the maps are illegally partisan. Well, Scott Moore, who's the chief of staff for the House Democratic Caucus, didn't uh, respond either to a request for comment uh, later on Monday. Well, in Oregon, Oregon Live and analysts found the map Democrats enacted creates three super safe Democratic seats, one super safe Republican seat, one seat that tilts in Democrats favor and one seat that is a virtual 50 50 tie in terms of how its voters had sided in key Republican Democrat matchups since 2015. Representative Salinas, a Lake Oswego Democrat, who took the lead in pushing the new congressional map through the House and has since told fellow lawmakers she plans to run for Congress in the newly drawn 6th District. The Oregon Oregon Live uh, report last week um, uh, pointed out that there may have been something of a conflict of interest. Well, the lawsuit says the new map harms the four former elected officials by frustrating their ability to vote for and campaign for congressional candidates who share their values and who share their views on issues such as gun rights, transportation and water rights. It also said the gerrymandering map relegates petitioners votes, issues and favored congressional candidates to obscurity in many parts of the state. Well, in a statement, uh, Clarno said Oregon Democrats broke their word to their fellow lawmakers and then broke the law. Oregon law has very clear protections against partisan gerrymandering that our legislature chose to violate. My hope is that judges reviewing this case will uphold the law, say no to gerrymandering, at least in this case, and say yes to the fair representation Oregonians deserve. Well, House Republican leader Christine Drazen of Canby was quick to lend her support Pointing out the gerrymandering is cheating, she said in a statement. Oregon Democrats want a map that protects incumbents, silences the voices of Oregonians. This challenge is an opportunity for the courts to fix the political gerrymandering and create maps that truly represent Oregon. Well, it is now left to the court to decide, first of all, whether or not an offense has been committed. And secondly, if they are going to remedy what the Republicans, these four former lawmakers, suggest is a wrong. We'll keep an eye on that and keep you posted. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Hey, by the way, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear the uh, interview I did with Dr. Robert Jeffress in the first hour of today's program, let me encourage you to do that and or, or perhaps both, pick up his latest book titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains That Separate You from the Blessed Life. You can pick that up on the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Find out more at kpdq.com. Great conversation on a, a timely book. And that was in the second half of the first hour of today's program. Well, speaking of Oregon politics, and I need to preface uh, this story on that fact because New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff is one step closer to running for Oregon governor in 2022. Yes, you heard me correctly. New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff. Well, today he filed paperwork to form a candidate committee, which allows him to fundraise for a political campaign and to hire staff. The Kristoff Committee is called Nick for Oregon. Nick has been exploring the idea of running for the governor of Oregon for the past few months, they write. And this is an important next step. That's a 
A quote from Carol uh, Butler, who's been serving as an advisor to Kristoff. Now, while filing to form a committee is an important step in the process, it doesn't mean he's officially running. He would need to file additional paperwork to declare as a candidate for governor. He has not said when or if he will take that next step. Now, Kristoff, you may know from the New York Times, he's 62. He is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner who is best known for his writing on human rights and global affairs. He grew up on a sheep and cherry farm in Yamhill County and still considers Oregon his home. Well, back in June, he told um, Laura uh, Porter, who is a KGW reporter, he was considering a run in the Democratic primary for governor. He said, at the time, I have friends trying to convince me that here in Oregon, we need new leadership from outside the broken political system. I'm honestly interested in what my fellow Oregonians have to say about that. In July, he confirmed he was mulling a run, and then he took a leave of absence from the New York Times to test the political waters. He's been critical of the leadership in Portland specifically, as have most residents of Portland, citing the ongoing problems of homelessness, vandalism, and violence. Well, if he chooses to run, he would be among the more well-known candidates in the Democratic primary for governor, which already includes Oregon House Speaker Tina Kotek, State Treasurer Tobias Reed, Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori, and State Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. They're also believed to be considering campaigns. The Democratic primary will be an open race in 2022 as current Governor Kate Brown finishes her term. So there you have it. New York Times uh, columnist, native Oregonian. Well, the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court are going to open their new term next week. Actually, that's this week. It's began this week. You know, I've been gone for a week, so my weeks are a little bit uh, off. But anyway, the the justices of the Supreme Court will open and did open their new term this week. The 2021-22 session promises to provide some pretty significant decisions that are going to have lasting impact on issues ranging from religious liberty to abortion to the Second Amendment. Now, how will the court's um, ostensible 6-3 conservative majority hold up? Well, time will tell. Now, that 6-3 majority, conservative majority, should be irrelevant if uh, the uh, jurists are looking at the Constitution, what it has to say, what it, it actually says, not what we would like it to say in light of the 21st century. But we'll see what actually happens. Well, the headline case and likely the most important one, or at least the uh, the one that's going to garner the most attention, uh, the court will hear um, is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. That case represents the biggest abortion challenge in three decades, and it holds the potential to yield a decision gutting or overturning Roe versus Wade and or Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the latter of which largely replaced Roe. Now, how likely is that? Given the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, it's very likely that they would make that kind of broad decision. It's more likely it will be very narrow, one side or the other of the issue. Nonetheless, at issue is Mississippi's Gestational Age Act. It passed back in 2018. It prohibits abortions after 15 weeks, except in the case of medical emergency. Now, the law was challenged by Mississippi's only abortion clinic, Jackson Women's Health Organization, and declared unconstitutional by a federal district court. Now, that ruling was subsequently upheld by the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The U.S. remains one of the only, I should say, one of only a handful of countries, most of the rest of them, Uh, communist paradises like China and North Korea that allow abortion after viability. So we stand in a pretty dubious company 
Another case has pretty significant Second Amendment ramifications. At issue is the New York uh, State Rifle and Pistol Association versus uh, Bruin. It's whether a state, in this case New York, can require an individual to obtain a license in order to possess a firearm, no matter whether a home or outside their home. Well, the uh, New York law has highly subjective is highly subjective in nature, as it's uh, left the permitting decision entirely up to a state officer to determine if no good cause exists for the denial of the license. Well, the New York law also requires that individuals seeking a license, and again, we're talking about a license to carry a gun or to have one, to show proper cause to lawfully carry a handgun. In other words, New York's presumption is anti-Second Amendment, leaving citizens to prove the case for exercising their rights instead of burdening the state with proving why those rights must be infringed upon in any way. So it's got things somewhat reversed, and the Supreme Court is going to weigh in on that. With regard to religious liberty, it's also under consideration in several cases the justices are going to hear in this session, specifically Carson versus Mackin. It challenges the state of Montana with religious discrimination on account of a government-sponsored student aid program that explicitly excludes religious schools from reviewing or receiving uh, funds. So they have been singled out based on their orientation with the current makeup of the Supreme Court seemingly favoring conservative rulings. Democrats and the left media outlets have uh, uh, preemptively declared any decision from the court to be heavily uh, influenced by political bias and therefore essentially illegitimate. When, in fact, the exact opposite would be the case. Now, the justices have gone out of their way to push back against these claims of politicization, noting that Democrats should be um, hanging that label upon Congress where it belongs. Now, it's rather interesting. The only reason they consider this is going to be a political outcome in each of these three uh, areas is because uh, there are conservatives in the majority. Now, if it were the opposite, this would not be considered by critics to be politicized. Well, besides the six justices generally on the originalist side of the court do not walk in activist lockstep the way the leftists do. The Chief Justice John Roberts in particular usually prefers the narrowest ruling possible. The outcome in these and other cases is anything but certain, but it will be very interesting to uh, follow these cases as they come before the court. Of course, what happens is they schedule, and we know December 1st is when the abortion case is going to be heard. They schedule the hearing and hearing the kinds of questions the justices ask, the kind of statements they make, and how the cases are presented by those in favor of and opposed to the issue uh, gives us a glimpse into what we think the court might be thinking. But until an actual decision is released, and that probably won't be until sometime this summer, we really have no idea what's going to happen. So the uh, the plot thickens and the mystery will continue for months to come. Meanwhile, Merck and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics said Friday that they've developed a drug that reduces the risk of hospitalization or death by around 50 percent for patients with mild or moderate cases of covid. Now, this uh, covid pill reduces the hospitalization and death risk again by half. It's a phase three trial and Merck and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics oral antiviral treatment um, showed it reduced the risk of hospitalization by that uh, significant uh, percentage. Merck plans to seek emergency use authorization in the U.S. and submit marketing application to other global drug regulators as well. If it's authorized by regulatory bodies, 
Uh, This um, drug could be the first oral antiviral medicine for COVID-19. Now, the company, when they briefed us uh, last uh, night, had mentioned that they will be submitting their data to the FDA imminently. White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci said at a COVID briefing on Friday. So this will be very interesting, not only uh, the fact that the drug exists and it's in the phase three trial, but whether or not the uh, FDA that is uh, due to receive the information imminently, that's the word um, that these um, Merck and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics chose, uh, if they will uh, grant emergency approval of this drug. So we'll keep our eyes and ears open on that. Meanwhile, and we may need to go into the next segment, just want to mention Pfizer and BioNTech have requested COVID-19 vaccine emergency authorization for kids ages 5 to 11. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a moment. Again, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the top news stories of the last, uh, well, few days. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. If you happen to miss the first hour, let me encourage you to check it out on our podcast. I had the opportunity to talk with uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book is titled Invincible, Conquering the Mountains that Separate You from the Blessed Life. That was in the second half of the first hour. You can check it out at kpdq.com, the Georgine Rice Show, and look for our podcast. Well, Pfizer and BioNTech requested Food and Drug Administration emergency authorization of their COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. That's what the company announced on Thursday last. Well, Pfizer took to Twitter to share the news, writing, With new cases of children in the U.S. continuing to be at a high level, this submission is an important step in our ongoing effort against COVID-19. By the way, the New York Times recently rescinded the inflated numbers of children who are being uh, impacted by COVID-19. So you might want to check your impression of how many kids are actually contracting COVID-19 because there's been a good deal of misinformation and exaggeration when it comes to kids. That said, Pfizer took to Twitter to share the news, writing, as I mentioned, Uh, With the new cases, we wanted to get this on the market as quickly as possible. Well, the news comes just over a week after Pfizer BioNTech submitted clinical trial data from a COVID-19 vaccine study among kids 5 to 11 to the FDA. Well, trial data included recent findings among 2,200 participants in that age group 5 to 11 that suggested a smaller dose shot was safe, well tolerated, and resulted in neutralizing antibody responses. Now, the company selected a two-dose regimen of of 10 microgram doses for kids 5 to 11 versus the two dose regimen of 30 UG doses uh, used for everyone 12 and older. So while there would be two doses, and my guess is it's going to be separated because we're now told that uh, those uh, who had the uh, the earlier vaccination, if it was what would originally, I think they told us two or three months apart, that um, coverage would have been much better if there had been more space between the first and second shot. So my guess is With the children's shot, they'll spread them apart a bit wider as well. But the FDA has scheduled an advisory committee meeting on the 26th of this month to inform its decision-making on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for kids 5 to 11. And uh, here's a quote from the acting FDA commissioner, Dr. Janet Woodcock. 
uh, from earlier this month in a news release. Uh, We know from our vast experience with other pediatric vaccines that children are not small adults, and we will conduct a comprehensive evaluation of clinical trial data submitted in support of the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine used in a younger pediatric population, which may need a different uh, dosage or formulation from that used in an older pediatric population or adults. Again, from the FDA commissioner, Janet Woodcock, in anticipation of the Pfizer BioNTech request for use of the vaccine in younger age adults. Well, as of uh, September 25th, U.S. kids ages 5 to 11 held one of the highest rates of weekly COVID cases per 100,000 population following adolescent ages 12 to 15 and teens ages 16 to 17 at um, Well, I won't even go into the specific numbers. Well, the summer surge in pediatric hospital admissions stirred alarm as respiratory illness coincided with younger children remained uh, ineligible to receive COVID-19 vaccines with the start of the school year. Now, again, there has been um, and the New York Times addressed this. There's been some exaggeration in terms of the number of younger children. And I don't have the the correct numbers in front of me, but you might want to check that out as you're considering or anticipating decision making on this pediatric version of uh, COVID-19 vaccination. Well, the question is, uh, given the vaccine mandates that the president uh, has announced over the last several weeks and months, where is the vaccine mandate order? Well, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, declared Joe Biden on September 9th when he announced, contrary to his prior assurance, I don't think it should be mandatory that he would be issuing a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for all federal workers and employees of larger companies. An agitated Biden asserted, your refusal has cost all of us. Well, it's cost him absolutely nothing. And I mean, the Logic is that if you have a vaccine, then you have nothing to worry about. So I won't go into that at this point. But the announcement both further politicized an already deeply divisive issue and needlessly threatened employment for hundreds of thousands of Americans in an economy that's continuing to struggle to recover from the worst pandemic in generations. Well, now a month on from the president's mandate announcement is yet to follow through. There is currently no vaccine mandate targeting large private companies. The Labor Department has not released any guide from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or OSHA regarding any COVID vaccine mandate. And according to Stephanie McFarland, a spokeswoman for the Indiana OHS or OSHA, uh, there is nothing uh, there yet that gives employee employers any mandate. The president made an announcement on this asking OSHA to do it, but we've not yet seen anything come from it yet. That's a quote. So when will Biden give the order? And even better question may be, will Biden ever actually follow through on his announcement? Well, either way, what is the Biden administration's strategy here for delaying an actual mandate after his public announcement? Well, for one thing, it gives larger companies cover for requiring their employees get vaccinated or lose their jobs. And by pointing to Biden's declared OSHA mandate, companies can insist the responsibility is out of their hands. On the other hand, uh, for Biden, not actually issuing a vaccine mandate avoids additional political damage for an increasingly unpopular president. Unions will have a harder time blaming Biden if it's not technically his mandate. The political calculation is that this will help protect Biden from blame in any struggling economy, namely ours at this time, when it's besieged with a large number of firings of those who refuse 
uh, corporate vaccination requirements, and they've already begun. However, the resistance um, to corporate mandates is already emerging in ways that significantly impact the country, including the Southwest Airlines employee protest this past weekend that caused the cancellation of thousands of flights, despite what Southwest is saying publicly. Well, such disruptions will um, metastasize in the coming weeks and could manifest in such actions as Teamsters uh, trucking slowdowns, choking already strained supply lines. We're hearing a lot about supply lines and how difficult it is to first get the goods and uh, to transport them across country. And there will be social consequences given emerging mandate resistance from law enforcement officers in increasingly violent urban centers. Some where as many as 40 percent of officers are refusing the vaccine, many of whom because they've already recovered from covid. And that's a whole nother story. Of course, there's also the immediate constitutional challenge. Republican state attorneys general um, have lined up waiting Uh, to take Biden to court over his massive constitutional overreach. But there's one problem. That overreach has not actually happened yet. Only the announcement has been made. They can't sue Biden over an executive order that doesn't yet exist on paper. So in this way, companies are given cover to enact their own vaccine mandates, something many of them have uh, desired over liability fears based upon the expectation that a mandate from OSHA is imminent. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of Americans are being forced to choose between getting the COVID vaccine or losing their jobs, and all due to an announcement that the president has yet to act upon. So much for all that talk about his patients wearing thin. Apparently, it's not quite thin enough. Well, Texas Governor Greg Abbott decided to call Biden's bluff, and on Monday, he issued an executive order. He banned any entity, that's any entity, from issuing COVID vaccine mandates in the Lone Star State. Now, Abbott, the governor, made clear that he's not opposed to the covid uh, vaccines, but is acting to preserve Texans individual liberty to make the decision for themselves. The covid-19 vaccine is safe, effective and our best defense against the virus, but should remain voluntary and never forced. Governor Abbott declared, well, at least in Texas, employers can't hide behind Biden's yet to materialize covid vaccine Mandate. We'll keep our eyes on uh, the president and OSHA to see if that mandate actually materializes as a legal document to be challenged by Republicans anytime soon. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And before we go to break, I want to remind you that you um, have an opportunity to strengthen your marriage. And if yours could use a boost, I've got a weekend to remember. Family Life's Weekend to Remember is a great opportunity to make an impact on your marriage. It's November 19th through the 21st at Red Lion Hotel on the river at Jansen Beach. You can improve your communication, resolve conflict in biblical ways, increase your commitment to your marriage, resulting in deeper intimacy and If you're interested, and I hope you will be, you can find out more about The Weekend to Remember at kpdq.com. Sort of information central. Just go there on a regular basis. Check it out because there's always something great going on. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I know, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, but we'll be back tomorrow at 4. I want to mention that Tony Evans has a new book out, and I think you'd really enjoy it. If you want to let God show you your purpose and your calling in life with a free devotional from Tony Evans, Called for a Purpose, all you need to do is log on to kpdq.com and use the keyword purpose. Called for a purpose. Check it out. 
once again at kpdq.com. Well, the Christian Broadcasting Network, also known as CBN, the founder, Pat Robertson, is stepping down as its host, host of the 700 Club, after 60 years of history-making TV ministry. 60 years. Now, I celebrated my 32nd year here at KPDQ at the start of this month. I can't imagine being here for another 29 years. Uh, he was on the air at C- <laughs> Justin Manfield, Mansfield <laughs> is on the other side of the glass engineering today's program. Why are you laughing, Justin? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to make of that. <laughs> anyway, 60 years is a very, very long time. One of the things I have asked my coworkers and people I respect is to tell me, and some of you would probably pick up the phone right now. Tell me when it's time to go. You know, I don't want to stay a day longer than I should. Again, I'll probably get a flood of emails and phone calls. Yeah, that was last year. Anyway, um, Pat Robertson is stepping down as the daily host of the 700 Club after 60 years of history-making TV ministry. Now, the founder is America's longest-running TV host, is stepping down from his role as the daily host, the longest-running TV host. Well, he announced on the 60th anniversary of CBN's first broadcast that he's moving on to new projects. <laughs> Listen to him. He's, uh, he's stepping down as the daily host, but he's moving on to new projects. And that's how I want to retire, moving on to new projects. He said, and I'm quoting, today's show will be my final as host of the 700 Club. My replacement will be my very capable son, Gordon, who will take over a full-time host of the program. Well, Robertson will turn his efforts to teaching students at Regent University, which he founded in 1977, and will also join in future CBN broadcasts as news warrants. So you will still see him, those of you who watch CBN. From time to time. Well, starting in October, he's going to appear on a monthly interactive episode of the 700 Club to answer viewer emails. He's also going to remain available for occasional broadcast appearances as a senior consultant on international affairs. He looks forward to devoting his energy and experience full time to helping train and equip members of the 11,000 strong student body of Regent University as they're preparing to become Christian leaders to change the world. Well, in hosting the Christian Broadcasting Network's flagship program for decades, Pat Robertson has shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with millions of viewers. He has worked to bring the hope of Christ to America and the world through inspiring testimonies of the Holy Spirit's power and firsthand accounts of lives touched by the generosity of CBN partners through disaster relief efforts and aid for others in need. Good and faithful doesn't even begin to describe my father's service to CBN for 60 years, says his son, the new host of the program. His legacy and example of his prayer life will continue to lead the 700 Club in the years to come. That was Gordon Robertson, who has served as co-host and executive producer of the 700 Club for two decades. And the best part is he wanted went on to say he's just going across the street to Regent University and will be on the 700 Club regularly in the future. I had no idea CBN was across the street from Regent. I just learned that. Well, Pat Robertson founded CBN in 1960 as the first Christian television network in the United States. The ministry expanded to include the production of the 700 Club six years later in 1966. Over a 60-year history of broadcasting the gospel, he also earned national and international recognition as a philanthropist, an educator, religious leader, businessman, and author. Well, since he established CBN News as a segment of the 700 Club, Robertson and the CBN News team have offered viewers insight into world events. 
Robertson has made news on many occasions himself by interviewing a broad range of world leaders and cultural influencers on the program, from presidents and prime ministers to top celebrities in the entertainment world. He obtained exclusive interviews with U.S. President Jimmy Carter, for example, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Well, he also conducted in-depth interviews with a dozen prime ministers of the state of Israel, including Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, Menachem Begin, Benjamin Netanyahu, Ehud Barak, Ariel Sharon, and Ehud Elmort. I think I didn't pronounce that last one correctly. Robertson interviewed many other world leaders, including the presidents of South Africa, Zambia, Angola, Zaire, uh, Vietnam, and virtually all of the leaders of Latin America. He even traveled to China and brought to his audience an exclusive interview with Prime Minister Zhu Rongji. Well, several other groundbreaking newsmakers um, he spoke with included Saddam Hussein's former nuclear scientist, Qadir Hamza, uh, who confirmed the dictator did not have the capacity to produce atomic, atomic weapons. Robertson took CBN cameras to far corners of the globe, too, like um, Pakistan, where he interviewed leaders of the Mujahideen, which later became al-Qaeda, while reporting on a potential collapse of the Soviet Union after its quagmire in Afghanistan. Well, it really is fascinating, the uh, the heads of state and leaders that he has had the opportunity to speak with face-to-face. He broke news when he spoke with the daughter of a Soviet spy who exposed her father, John Walker, during a 700 Club interview as an uh, intelligence official who leaked U.S. secrets to the communist regime from 67 to 85. Walker's daughter speaking to Pat Robertson. Well, beyond the geopolitical realm, Pat Robertson enjoyed interviewing numerous Christian leaders, including Corey Ten Boom. Oh, I would love to have had the opportunity to sit across a table with uh, Corey Ten Boom. Um, Reinhard Bonnke, Chuck Colson, Richard Wormbrand, um, Jonathan Kahn, Franklin Graham, and Graham Lotz, Tony Evans, Max Lucado, uh, Ben Carson, Kirk Cameron, Lee Strobel, Senate Chaplain Barry Black, uh, to name just a few. But again, he has uh, stepped down as the daily host of the 700 Club, but will be at Regent University and continue his uh, his public ministry, if you will, in various uh, various capacities with the Christian Broadcasting Network. Just a fascinating a role that he has played uh, in the country over the years. Well, in just other news, John Gruden has resigned as the Raiders head coach after offensive emails were revealed. He informed his staff that he was resigning as the head coach after a series of emails showed him delivering a racist and uh, misogynistic comments and emails during his time at ESPN. Uh, His role as coach was uh, really quite um, amazing, but given these disclosures and the times that we're living in, he voluntarily stepped down. Meanwhile, in other news, um, the debate is raging over President Biden's proposed $600 IRS reporting requirement. You have two nickels in your... um, On your savings and checking account, the IRS is going to be following very closely what you have to do with them. 5G technology is beginning to expand beyond smartphones, and Vanguard has rolled back its plan to cut retiree benefits. J.P. Morgan's CEO makes a prediction on the supply chain recovery, suggesting that, oh, everything will be fine next year. Didn't we hear that last year, that this whole COVID thing would be over? 
So prognosticators have a little less sway in my book these days. Two Georgia workers have been fired after being accused of shredding voting applications, but nothing to see here. No voter fraud in the United States. Vice President Kamala Harris's cringeworthy science video was a bigger phony than originally thought. The children were actually paid actors, and it was it was actually produced in Canada. It's a U.S. NASA event. I don't know if you've seen it, but... Oh, my, it just wasn't it wasn't worthy. Also, NASA's plan for Wi-Fi on the moon is being tested to span Cleveland's digital divide. And California's AG is investigating an oil spill that forced Huntington Beach to close. Well, those are just some of the headlines from the last several days. We'll take a look at new and emerging headlines tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, actually, we won't because I'm so looking forward to this and I can't believe I forgot for just a moment We're going to have Union Gospel Mission join us here in uh, studio as we bring the needs of those in our community who need help to your attention and ask you to prayerfully consider uh, giving to those needs and the life change that's possible uh, through the efforts of Union Gospel Mission. So stick around uh, tomorrow from four to six as we have the opportunity uh, to talk with our good friends at UGM. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Justin Mansfield for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.